This is the visible hand. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal. My guest today is Daniela Vidal, who is an assistant professor of economics at the University of Connecticut. Today we're going to talk about her paper, Human Capital, Female Employment and Electricity, Evidence from the Early 20th Century United States. The paper was published at the Review of Economic Studies in 2023. Daniela, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jordi, for having me. So could you start by stating the general hypothesis that links electrification with the increase in female labor participation. What does this hypothesis say? Who proposed it first? And prior to your paper, what was the mechanism that was hypothesized and what was the evidence for or against it? In my paper, what I do is I do revisit this question about the link between electrification and female labor force participation in the United States. And what I do is I show empirically and theoretically that a key and previously underlooked channel through which this operates is that electricity created labor market opportunities for skilled women. And the theory that was sort of there before my paper is a seminal in a seminal paper by Greenwood Sushadri and Jarukoglu, which says that electrification, the way electrification encouraged female labor force participation was through appliances. So electricity allows for appliances to enter the home. These appliances save time at the home. That frees up all this time that women can then use to work. Uh, the, the thing that was a little bit of a challenge with that hypothesis, though, is that if you actually look at the data on the time spent in home production, so home production hours for women uh, throughout the 20th century in the United States, you see that they barely decline from about 1900 to 1960, which is also the time when electricity is spreading widely and a lot of appliances are becoming available. So there seems to be a little bit of a tension there. So what I do is I, you know, I, I, I say, you know, there can still be a link between electrification and, and female labor force participation. I just simply argue that that link occurs through labor market opportunities. So electricity is a general purpose technology, is a very important technology that also affects the business side of things. It affects uh, job creation. So I, in my paper, I, I, you know, I highlight the importance of this channel, of these opportunities that are kind of labor market opportunities created by electrification for women, and in particular, the role of human capital acquisition. So electricity is a skill bias technology. Women have a comparative advantage in brain over brawn. So these two, two things together imply that electricity disproportionately created labor market opportunities for women. And examples of these types of opportunities abound, like both jobs created directly and indirectly, like switchboard operators, but also kind of secretaries, bookkeepers, etc. As I said, we'll go to your paper in a second. But if if we stick to the Greenwood and co-authors and Ramey uh, evidence that you have mentioned, so Greenwood says, okay, well, women don't have to wash the clothes by hand anymore because they have a washing machine. So all this time that they were using before to wash the clothes by hand, now they can use to go and be secretaries in a type of service occupation. And then Rame says, okay, well, if this hypothesis is true, then we should observe that between 1900 and 1965, when electrification takes place and the increase in labor participation takes place among women, if that is true, then we should observe that the time that they spend in household production goes down and that mm -hmm. is freeing up all this. 
mm-hmm. but it doesn't. Okay, so I guess that given that the day only has 24 hours, I guess that a natural question is, well, if women are not decreasing the time that they spend doing household production in the first 60 years of the 20th century, and they are increasing the time that they spend working outside the home, what were they doing before, right? Were they just watching the sunset or, you know, were they just relaxing? That sounds unlikely, right? So clearly there is some type of like combination of numbers there that that needs some type of explanation. Yes. So there's two things. One, in my story, there's a lot of, there are adjustments through leisure. So one thing that has happened is that leisure has decreased quite substantially for women in the United States uh, for quite a a while now. So because now women kind of are juggling between being uh, both kind of mothers and, and women in their homes, but also workers. So that's one thing. The second thing, though, is a little bit about the timing in life that this is occurring. So Claudia Golden, another show, you know, that during this period, one of the big things that happened was that we moved from a regime of where women sort of either were, you know, they were in the labor force or they had a family. So either career or family to one where you have both, but at different times. And that's something that happens in my story as well. You generally women, you know, they get educated and then they enter the labor force for a few years when they're young. And then when they get married, they exit. So this kind of tension that you're alluding to, you know, is exists and some of it can be explained through leisure, but also through the fact of when in life you are engaging in, in labor force participation as a woman, which during this time was in particular when you were young. So do single women not engage in home production then? Because some of them might be staying with their parents, maybe others might be living by themselves, but presumably they also have things to do at home, right? Like they're, they're I mean, presumably, I mean, I know from experience that children create a lot of work, you know, mm-hmm. but that's not the only work that is created in the home. Of course, no. Women, single women, of course, still do home production during this time. Many of them did live with their parents. That doesn't mean that they didn't have home production needs and that they spent some time in in, in home production. But they did have a lot more leisure. Right. So they had a little a lot more opportunity to sort of do an adjustment through that if they did want to go to work compared to women who are mothers who, you know, have families and who have, have to spend a lot more time in home production in childcare because of that. Yes. So you have uh, already mentioned the new mechanism that is linking electrification with a female labor force participation uh, in this paper. The the paper is somewhat uh, unusually structured in that there is first a macro theory uh, model, uh, then a calibration of this macro model, and then a set of microeconometric evidence uh, supporting the main channel in the model. If you could start with this uh, macro model and uh, give us a little bit of the flavor of the main ingredients that it has and the mechanisms that it uh, proposes, uh, you could repeat them. And what are the main predictions that follow from the model? Yes, of course. So I do start with this overlapping generation model, which is kind of overarching goal is to link the arrival of electricity to the increase in female labor force participation and see kind of do a quantification of how much of the increase in female labor force participation we observed in the 20th century in the United States, we can explain 
through electricity. So there's two key elements that make my story work in this model. Okay, there's more bells and whistles, but these are the two key elements. The first is that electricity is a skilled bias technology. And the second is that women have a comparative advantage in brain versus brawn, which means that when electricity comes, they're disproportionately uh, benefited in terms of the opportunities opened by electrification. Okay, so that's kind of the, the, the two things. The second kind of part of this is that there is human capital accumulation in the model because, you know, these are this is a skill bias technology. You need to have the kind of necessary skills to access these labor market opportunities open by electrification. And what I have in the model is that individuals choose how much human capital to acquire when young. So what this is going to make is that the market gains generated by electrification through this skill bias and brain versus brown, uh, brain versus brown channel which are going to be shaped by human capital are going to develop through generational change. And therefore, they're going to develop slowly because, you know, if electricity comes, you're already a 50 year old woman. You're not going to go back to school to take advantage of the opportunities. But maybe if you're 15, you'll continue in school so that you can take a, you know, get the education needed to take advantage of the labor market, uh, labor market opportunities. So that's that's a key thing. So you mentioned uh, two elements. The first one is the brain versus brawn. Let me just rephrase this. Men have more uh, upper body strength than women. So mm -hmm. when it comes to pulling from a cart, uh, they are superior in this respect. Uh, women are not as good on that, but they are maybe uh, equally better or maybe even better at, say, typing. But that's mm -hmm. something that requires electricity. Okay, so then electrification arrives and then suddenly the competitive advantage of women has increased. Yes. Now, that's fine. The uh, additional element that you mentioned is that there has to be a lag to this uh, taking advantage of the opportunities, correct? So this is an important prediction of the model. Yes. And, and the lag occurs through the channel of the fact that in order to take advantage of this competitive uh, uh, advantage that has arisen, women have to be educated. But women cannot become educated in their 50s, or at least that's not typical. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is the reason that you have the overlapping generations model, correct? So mm -hmm. a critical prediction of your model is the lag. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. So, so there's two key elements in the model, as we were mentioning. One is that electricity is a skill bias technology. And second, that women have a comparative advantage in brain over brawn, so that women are comparatively better at you know using their brains, whereas men are comparatively better at using their muscles and carrying heavy things up, etc. So what that causes is that when electricity comes, it disproportionately benefits women. Doesn't mean that it doesn't benefit men. It's just that a lot of the kind of the, the women are benefited more. So basically, we we are in a world world where you know before electrification, say many of the opportunities are unskilled opportunities, opportunities of having to carry heavy things, push heavy things, etc. Women are not very good at that. So because of that, they're relatively better off doing home production. Okay. After electrification, the benefit of these skilled opportunities increases and a lot of them are created, which means that women now have, um, have you know, more opportunities and they, they're, some of them are better off going off and engaging in the labor market rather than staying at home and doing uh, home production. And a key part of this is skills because this is a skilled, you know, this, these are skilled opportunities. You need to have kind of human capital to take advantage of them. And that human capital is accumulated when you're young. So that's when the overlapping generations aspect really becomes important because young women, you know, have the opportunity to coordinate their human capital decisions to take advantage of those opportunities 
whereas older women don't. And what that causes is kind of a slow increase in female labor force participation with electrification because there is this lag. And second, it causes something that is going to be important for my empirical analysis, which, which is that the, the rise in employment, the rise in female labor force participation is going to be driven by young, skilled women. That's where we're going to see most of the increases in this story because of these mechanisms combined. So imagine that women didn't become educated uh, in order to take advantage of the potential employment opportunities. Okay, so obviously a lot of women of say middle class or maybe lower middle class will go to school in order to be able to get a job in the future. But just for the sake of the argument, let's imagine that we are thinking of women from the, let's say, upper classes who are, we're always going to study French and ancient Greek and English and some maths or, or, or whatever, maybe in order to just enjoy it, uh, because obviously education has some type of consumption value, maybe to uh, get a better match in the marriage market. Okay? Now, these women are there and then electrification arrives, right? They will not be they will not be part of your endogenous mechanism that you have in your model. This will be the type of woman that if they are more prone to join the labor market as a result of the electrification, they already have the human capital. So therefore they will be able to jump, right? Uh, obviously that's gonna be a relatively small proportion of the population, but this will be women for, your, for which there will not be a lag. And the women mm -hmm. for which there will be a lag will be the ones who are endogenously acquiring the human capital in order to uh, take advantage of the potential employment opportunities. And this is something that you can only do in your 50s. And uh, if uh, you were you grew up at a time at which uh, these opportunities were not there, you miss, miss the chance and so on. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's kind of correct, you know, in, in the sense that Think these are very specific jobs, you know, that are open by electricity. I, I give two kind of examples in the paper. One is kind of directly created by electricity. It's switchboard operators, which, you know, it was this kind of, it was a huge employer for women, the women directing the calls, which was directly powered by electricity. That, that did not exist before. And for example, that job, you needed kind of switchboard operator school specifically. So even if you had an education in, you know, Latin or, you know, or, or English or whatever it was, you wouldn't have the skills to do that. So it was you, you kind of had to be purposeful about engaging specifically that type of uh, that type of education. Same thing with the second type of uh, of uh, job opportunity that I talk about in the paper, which is secretaries or bookkeepers. They existed beforehand. It's not that they didn't. It's just that, you know, because with electrification, the process of production became so much more complex these opportunities became much more common and they also needed very specific complementary human capital investments like going to secretarial school. So when I think about a lot, a lot of what electrification did and, and its impact on female labor force participation, it is within these categories of jobs, which needed, you know, this didn't need a four-year education, you know, in, in, uh, in the classics or, or four-year education in medicine or whatever. It really was about finishing high school and doing one year of, say, secretarial school or switchboard school to gain the skills that were precisely needed in the types of jobs that were opened by electrification. Okay, so previous theory proposes this like a substitution 
away from home production and into, you know, like outside production uh, has been the main mechanism. You say, no, it is the fact that um, uh, outside production relatively favors women, but obviously the fact that you also need human capital implies that there is going to be a lag. The second part that you have uh, in this paper is a calibration model. What is that? Yes. So I, you know, I started with an analytical model, which sort of formalizes the theory that we've been talking about. And then I have a quantitative model that is calibrated. And the purpose of this is to be able to quantify the importance of, you know, this channel and electrification in an uh, increase in female labor force participation uh, in the United States in the 20th century. So what I do is that I, you know, I calibrate the, the model to the 1900 in the United States and simulate the rollout of the electricity grid in this period in this model and see how much, you know, the model predicts that female labor force participation will increase and uh, contrast that with the data. And what I see is that the model can explain about a quarter of the rise in female labor force participation from about 1900 to 1940. And another feature it has is that it can also match the slow decline in home production hours we were mentioning before for women in the in the 20th century. And then that comes from this lag that we've been talking about, the fact that you need these complementary skills to take advantage of the opportunities so that the benefits of electrification on female labor force participation accrue through uh, generational change and younger women entering the labor force. So in this calibration, you have a single economy. Is that correct? Like uh, you're studying the whole of the U.S. economy. That's right. There are some patterns of increase or of change of all these variables, right? Like, like uh, you have some measure of, well, what was the electricity that was generated at the level of the U.S.? What was maybe the size of the service sector? What was labor force, a uh, female labor force participation? And you have like all these patterns in there. And then you are going to choose some parameters from the literature that are parameters that you have in your, in your model. You choose some of the other values to match some of the data moments. And then um, you use the method moments to minimize the distance between the remaining variables and the data moments. And, and with that, you are like a replicating or predicting um, in a way that seems to fit the data, the increase in all these things, correct? Like the most important one, I presume, is going to be the increase in female labor for participation. That's right. So the calibration, as you're mentioning, has kind of, there's basically three sort of rough sources for the, for the, for the values of the calibrated parameters. One is directly from literature, as you were mentioning. The second is the, you know, there's certain kind of expressions in the model that I are close form and I can relate the parameters in those expressions to specific moments in the data. So for example, if uh, you know the productivity of women in skilled labor is I can directly relate to the gender gap in uh, unskilled and skilled labor and I can use uh, use use those moments in the data to calibrate those parameters. And then I have some from method of moments precisely I want to minimize the distance between the model moments and the uh, data moments. And in those, in those kind of in, in that calibration, I try to capture what the world was like in 1900 in the United States. And then I simulate, you know, the rollout of the electricity grid, which happened from in my, you know, the, the period I focus on is 1900 to 1940. And I see what happens to female labor force participation as predicted by the model there. 
And what I see there is that the rise that happens in the model is about a quarter of the actual rise that we observed in the data. So what that tells you is that the mechanisms I formalized in the model can explain a quarter of the of, of that increase in female labor force participation in the United States. Sorry. So as you say, the, the model is uh, calibrated between 1880 and 1940. Um, mm -hmm. At least that's what, what seems to uh, come from the paper. Mm -hmm. So you have in the paper this graph that is showing the increase in female labor force participation. And uh, I'm going to describe this, this graph here. Uh, let me know whether you disagree with my description. Mm -hmm. uh, female labor force participation is broadly flat until 1890, mm -hmm. and then it increases more or less linearly until 1940. Mm -hmm. uh, typically, you know, with, with the same, more or less with the same type of slope. Then you also have the predicted increase in female labor force participation when you switch on this electrification channel that we have been describing here that uh, that makes people better educated and then women go and work as switchboard operators and so on. Now, this prediction that you have that comes from the model is that a female labor force participation remains more or less flat until 1920 and that increases in a way that seems more or less exponential uh, after that. So I was wondering whether the shapes of these functions are consistent with each other. Like you were saying, I explained around 25%, but it seems that the, the timing of these increases is a little bit different across, across the two variables. Obviously, one possibility is that there is something else, the other 75% that is decreasing in importance in a way that seems to perfectly counterbalance the shape of your prediction. But I, I was wondering what could that be that that seems to together generate this uh, linear pattern that we observe in the data. Yes. So there is definitely something of many other things going on during this time period. You know, the channel I have only explains 25%. So as you're mentioning, there's room for other explanations. This difference in the shapes comes from the fact that the, the, the lags that we've been talking about. So there's really two things here. So first, Electricity during like, you know, electricity kind of started spreading in the United States at around 1890. That's when there was like the first station in New York City. And it was kind of a slow process in the beginning because first we only kind of went to the big cities and then it picked up after that. But until roughly about 1910, there hadn't been a lot of spread of electricity. So the model, of course, is picking up some of that because I'm simulating the rollout. If there's not a rollout, a lot of rollout before 1910, that's going to be picked up, um, of course, by the model. The second part is the lag, this fact that human capital is required to take advantage of the opportunities, which causes this lag in, in, in the effects and which causes that, you know, even though, okay, electricity starts spreading more widely in 1910, we're not going to see that until kind of much, much later. And the fact that you see that sort of fast pickup in the model is because you see all these generations sort of entering quite quickly. I do think that there's still things going on during this period. I think the thing that is important to remember in terms of, and this is not just in the model, this is just a qualitative observation as well, is that electricity was a revolutionary technology. Even today, it continues to revolutionize things, you know, in, in the way in the way we live through like, for example, you know, electric cars, et cetera. At the time, it revolutionized the productive landscape and the home landscape so much that I think it did become predominant in those later kind of years in explaining what was happening, you know, to women, but also in other aspects uh, of the economy. 
but the shape that and the shape that we observe in the model is consistent with that idea. So moving now to the like microeconometric evidence uh, on the relation between electrification and uh, female labor force participation, could you start by telling us what was the shape of this rollout that took place uh, around the United States? You said around 1890 in New York, but then what happened? What determines whether a particular big city or medium-sized city or, or rural county got electricity uh, throughout the first half of the 20th century? Yes. So it started in 1890 in the United States and it, does, it spread to large cities after that. So, you know, Chicago, Los Angeles, et cetera. And that kind of kept happening until about 1910. Other places that got electrified during this early period were, for example, places that had a lot of hydroelectric potential because it would have been kind of cheap to build a dam, produce electricity, uh, produce electricity uh, there. For the period after that, you know, in 1910, which is the, I, in, in, my, in my empirical analysis of the period I focus on, the kind of opportunities in the big cities were sort of depleted. So what kind of the the people kind of the barons or the people who were doing these efforts kind of wanted to do there was spread into mid-sized areas. So, so sorry, a, a big city is like how many cities are we talking about in the U.S.? By 1910, like 20 maybe or? Yeah, like about 10, 15, I would say 10, 15 big cities. Yes. 10, 15 big cities. Okay. So yes. anything below being the 15 biggest city in the U.S. hadn't happened until 1910. Yes. It, it, and then there are going to be a lot of those. And then typically maybe the slightly bigger will electrified earlier or something like this. So the way it works, and this is, you know, I can see some of this in the data, but it is also kind of from the accounts of the time is, you know, the places that were there, there were really big returns to electrify were already electrified. So we had electrified the Chicago's, we had electrified the New York's. Then we started focusing on mid-size, kind of mid-size areas to get electrified. And a lot of this was driven by cost considerations. And all of the, all, a lot of it has to do with the geography. There's places where putting this, you know, transmission technology because of the terrain, if it's very rugged, is a lot more expensive than doing it in other places. So a lot of it was driven by, uh, by, by driven by those considerations. And this is the example I give in the paper, the places that got electrified kind of during this period where, you know, places like Muncie, Indiana, you know, places that were kind of mid-sized counties, they were not large, but they still weren't like the super rural areas. This process continued for a long time. There were places electrified in the teens, very similar places electrified in the 20s uh, through the 30s. And then after that, there were some places that lagged, which were mostly rural areas. And electrification in those places a lot of it was motivated by programs the government kind of put out, for example, the Tennessee Valley Authority or the Rural Electrification Act to kind of electrify those last very rural pockets that hadn't been electrified. And then the process of electrification was complete pretty much in the United States by 1950, 1960. So, so one thing that potentially if we were like a very sophisticated engineers and we had access to the type of information that they had at the time, one could, in principle, generate some type of engineering model that uh, creates this type of predictions about whether this small town that you mentioned in Indiana is going to be electrified before some other place, right? And it could be that it happens to be near a dam or some river or something like that. But if I understand it well, broadly speaking, you take it as, let's not worry too much about it. 
let's just take it as the fact that the exact timing, the fact that certain areas got electrified during the 1910s is broadly speaking exogenous. Is that the idea? Yes. I mean, I, I think I do have some of that in my mind. And I, I should say, you know, in the in the theory, in, in the in the empirical analysis, you know, there I do a triple different strategy precisely because I also want to further control for some of these concerns we have about these areas. Oh, they may not be the same. So and this comes a lot from, you know, the, the, the triple difference I do is, you know, there's an electrified, not electrified pre and post and uh, whether you had access to education or not in those areas, again, because of this prediction of my of my theory that this really was concentrated among educated women. So that kind of takes kind of some of that into account. The second part of it is that the era that I'm focusing in in terms of electrification is the teens, because that's where my data comes from. And what is kind of nice about doing it this way, and also because of the importance of the timing of when electrification comes in your life, is that you have a series of counties that were electrified in the teens because, again, cost considerations or something something else. You had a series of very similar counties that were electrified just a little bit later, you know, say in the, you know, in 1920 or something. And, you know, but that women of the cohorts that I focused in, which are women who were young, kind of in the teens, that would have been too late. So that allows me to really kind of compare this cohort of women across different counties because of this feature of how electrification uh, was was spread in the United States. I want to spend some time later trying to describe and, and understand how this triple difference strategy works. But if we stick uh, for the time being uh, to your uh, independent variable, the one, not, not, not the triple difference variable, but the one that captures the increase in electrification across the counties, how is that variable generated? Um, yes, so in, in the empirical analysis, you mean? What I mean is, where does the data about electrification come from? Yes. So one challenge that I had, you know, initially when, when, when working on this was that I was interested in this kind of early 20th century, you know, period, because that's where, you know, labor force participation was increasing and also electricity spreading. But we didn't have this kind of county level information about when different counties got electrified. So I did kind of like a lot of research on trying to find a source for this data. And I was lucky in that I found these books that have the universe of central generating stations in the United States in kind of two specific time periods. I, I found it for 1911 and 1919. And what that allowed me to build was this kind of measure of the kind of electrification in a county through the capacity uh, of electricity that that county had in 1911 and 1919. So these books are very nice because they're organized by state and by city. And within, within each cities, they tell you how much electricity capacity generation was there in that city at that point in time. So because I have it in 1911 and 1919, I can see, okay, were there counties that were not electrified in 1911 because they didn't have any capacity, but then were electrified in 1919 because they did have capacity. And I can see that those are the counties that gained access to electricity in those in that period. How did the women in those areas fare versus women who hadn't, uh, who were in areas that had not access to electricity? Uh, at all. Yes. So if I if I live uh, in Buffalo uh, or in Albany, New York, mm -hmm. uh, in 1910 um, or in 1911, in the, the the first edition that you have of your book, 
and I have no, there are no power plants in my area generating any electricity. One possibility in moving from 1911 to 1919 is that suddenly some new power plant arrives there. Okay, mm-hmm. and that will appear in your book and you will have that for that metropolitan area or county or whatever, there is an increase in the local generation of uh, capacity uh, and, and that's your uh, independent variable. The other possibility is that being in New York State, I send a cable to New York, which has been electrified 20 years earlier, and I get the electricity from there. Um, why is it that the generation had to be local for the consumption of electricity to be local? Yes, and that is a very important point because if you could just do what we do nowadays, which is just transmit electricity for miles and miles, you know, having the information of where the electricity is generated wouldn't be very meaningful. During this time, the transmission technology was, let's just say, not, you know, I'm not an engineer, but it was just not where not very good. And you could only transmit electricity kind of from the generating station about 50 miles around it, maybe 100 miles in some cases, but definitely not more than that during this period. That only started changing in the late 20s and 30s, uh, especially in California. That's kind of when they started pioneering those changes in the technology to transmit electricity kind of further, uh, further distances. But during this time period, it was only 50 uh, to 100 miles, which means that If we know where electricity is generated, which I do through my books that I found, then I know who had electricity because it could only be the people who are around the the generating stations. Could you now describe the uh, data set, how you construct your data set, and then what is the regression, the main baseline regression that you run uh, on this data set? Yes. So what I did is I, you know, these were some very old books from the teens. So to construct this county level measure of electrification during the 1910s, I had to do two things. I had to digitize kind of the entire books that was with the help of an array, uh, kind of in saying for every single city that we had information for what was their generation capacity and doing that, you know, in 1911 and 1919, this was at the city level. So then we had to kind of aggregate it at, at the county level. And then the measure that we use as sort of the measure of electrification that we use is the change in generation capacity between 1911 and 1919 within and 50 miles around counties. And again, that is mo- uh, that is motivated by, by what we were talking about, about the importance of being close to ge- the generation source to be able to consume this this electricity. Another thing I do is that I exclude places that were already widely electrified. So the New Yorks, the Chicago's that we were talking about before, because I wanna focus in places that gained their access to electricity in the teens versus those that they didn't. Um, so that's kind of for the, the data on uh, on electricity. I then combine this data, this county level measure of electrification with census data, because I want to be able to kind of see see these women. So to do that, I start with the universe of US census records with names in 1910 to 1940, and I construct a panel of women throughout these waves uh, using a matching algorithm, in particular the matching algorithm uh, algorithm developed by Abramirsky, Busan, and Erickson, which relies on name, birthday, and birthplace uh, and birthplace to match records across waves. And what I and I focus on that data on individuals who were 15 years of age or more in 1910, 
again, because I want to kind of follow these cohorts through time and see how different cohorts who were in areas that got electrified in the teens versus those that didn't uh, fared. And I do a triple different strategy where I uh, look at how the, the outcome is employment. In particular, this is the gainful employment definition because of the because of the because of the census. And I look at a triple different strategy where the kind of three levels I consider are pre and post. So 1910 and 1920, 30 and 40 as the post periods in areas that had more to less access to electrification during the teens. And then third, because this is very important to my story about the fact that um, the gains in uh, labor force participation are concentrated for women who were educated. The third was areas what had that had schooling opportunities, which means uh, which I use this data that other people constructed on the required years of schooling in, in each state and each cohort to have that kind of third uh, third component. Well, in the same way that looking at a graph in two dimensions is much, much easier than looking at a 3D graph. Mm -hmm. And obviously a 4D graph is even harder in that it is impossible. These triple different strategies are, are kind of difficult to get your hand around it. Like I, I even, I have had them in my own papers and it is every time for me like a struggle to try to understand what is going on there. I'm seeing this uh, to ask you to bear with me as I describe uh, again, how you construct the data set uh, mm -hmm. and, and how you construct some of the variables and the interactions and all this. And uh, please correct me if I'm wrong at any time. You say that you take, let's say that you take a, a sample of women who are between 15 and 20 years old in 1910. Okay, well, now these women are going to differ, okay, across a three dimensions. The first one is the time dimension, the pre versus post. Okay, let's say that we measure them in 1910, but then we measure them again in 1920. Okay, so that will be the first, we can create a pre dummy uh, that way or a post dummy for 1920. Okay, so that's the first dimension. The second dimension is that they may live in a county that becomes electrified or not during the 1910s. Okay, according to these handbooks that you got, there is an increase in the megawatts, et cetera, et cetera. Now, obviously, this is a continuous variable, but for the sake of the argument, let's just imagine that it is discrete. Okay, let's just imagine that uh, some countries, some counties uh, remain non-electrified and others become electrified by 1919. Okay, the third dimension in which these women are going to differ from each other is that they may be educated or not. Okay, now one thing that is important here is that you are measuring education, not as the number of years that they choose to educate themselves, but instead uh, somewhat exogenously as determined by whether they live in a state that has compulsory education laws or not. Okay, so uh, this is the reason that I started talking about the like a upper middle class woman who knew a lot of French and ancient Greek. So the equivalent here is that you may have no interest in education, but you happen to believe in a state that is forcing you to study until, I don't know, year 12 or whatever it is, okay? So now you have a, a this panel data set of women, okay, uh, 19, 10 versus 20, and uh, you control for the post dummy, you control for the 
uh, increasing electrification, dummy, let's say, uh, you control for the uh, education versus no dummy, all the double differences, the triple difference is your independent variable of interest, correct? Correct. I have described it correctly. Okay. So if you could tell us, uh, you have other panels in which you also look at 1930 versus 10 and everything, but if we could focus now on the data set in which the, the pre-period is 1910, the post-period is 1920, what is the coefficient that is associated with this triple interaction? Yes. So let me try to interpret it kind of in, in clear terms, just to just to make it clear. So the increase in employment among young women, so we're focusing on women who are 15 to 20 years of age in, in, in 1910, we're living in areas or in states with a required schooling level of eight years or more was approximately eight percentage points higher on average in 1920 relative to 1910 than that of young women with a required level of schooling level of less than eight years in areas with an increase in generating capacity of 100 megawatts in the 1910s. So this is eight percentage points higher for 100 megawatts more generation capacity. That's basically how you should think of it in areas that had a compulsory schooling of eight years or more versus those that didn't. So being 1920 versus 1910, being educated versus not, being electrified versus not, the parameter of that is eight percentage points. Mm -hmm. Correct. Okay. So now, uh, and then you have other stuff, uh, you know, from other panel data sets and so on. But uh, if we if we focus on this uh, regression for the time being, I think that there is a way in which this empirical specification is differing from the story that we started uh, at the beginning that comes from your model. So something that you told me at the beginning of this conversation is that the uh, endogeneity of the human capital accumulation was very important to you, right? That's what the reason that you have an overlapping generations model because there is a, a small percentage of women that happen to be educated, but then they observe that their country becomes electrified they observe that there is this potential for all these jobs as switchboard operators, uh, you said, and then they say, okay, wait a second, I'm young enough that I can still go to secretary school or, or something like that. And that is the mechanism through which this happens. Mm -hmm. Now, in these regressions, however, you are using, let's say, plausibly exogenous variation in education. So you are kind of shutting down one of the key mechanisms in your model. Instead, you are exploiting exogenously, you know, generated education. Why do that? So, I mean, the short answer is uh, because there is endogeneity in that choice and there was concern, you know, that's originally what I did kind of when I first had the paper, but there was concern, you know, among referees that, there was an endogeneity there. I also think that I was shutting down something by doing that. And therefore I used to focus on the differences by the observed educational level of the women uh, when I did this triple difference. But there was concern that there was endogeneity in this. And even though I was, you know, I am shutting down something by doing that, I think it's it's a cleaner sort of estimate if I focus on an exogenous measure of, uh, of schooling. That is uh, one thing. The second thing is that I do, because I also believe what you're saying, Jordi, I do robustness in when I, I mean, I do a lot of robustness, but one of the robustness, very important robustness that I do is that I show what the results would look like if in my triple difference, I do not proxy for educational attainment through this schooling loss, 
but instead use the observed educational attainment as I was doing initially in the paper. And what you see there is that definitely for women who had more education, who got more educated, you see a much bigger increase in terms of labor force participation uh, for, for those women. In particular, you see those increases very concentrated for women who either had completed high school or post-secondary education, which again, post-secondary here doesn't necessarily mean a four-year college degree. It can mean this secretarial kind of switchboard kind of education. So you see the increases concentrated among that group, very in line with the types of opportunities that um, I mentioned in the paper were being opened by electrification for uh, women. Yes. So just to be clear, I was not uh, asking or, or, or doubting this or asking for a robustness test on this. But instead, I was positing that if the endogeneity of education is essential to your model, that should be something that you might want to allow for in the, in the data and, and, and the, in some sense explore directly. I, I was saying this partly because, well, you have another prediction uh, from the model. And that prediction if, of the model is that if instead of putting labor for participation on the left-hand side, you put education on the left-hand side, which is the key mechanism through which your model operates, uh, we should find that in 1920, uh, a lot of the women that have been living in counties that have had this electrification will have chosen, obviously if they were young enough, et cetera, et cetera, will have chosen to accumulate that, that education, right? So this is a key prediction of the model that you could test directly in the paper. Yes, and I do. So I do look at the effects of electrification on, uh, on school attendance. And to do this, I, I follow age groups. So I see people who are age 60 to 24, and I see them in 10, 20, uh, 30, 40, and I see what you know school attendance looks like, okay? So whether they're attending school, yes or no, because that's one variable that I can look at uh, in, in the census. And what I see is that there are kind of increases in school attendance, but it, it kind of concentrates particularly for this kind of post-secondary, like completing secondary and post-secondary period. You know, the, the increases that you're seeing in school attendance concentrate for people who are, who are 16 to 18 years old, meaning that those are the people who are saying, you know, maybe I'll stay one extra year, I'll stay a couple more years so that I can get the needed education to access uh, this opportunity. So I do do that. That is within the context of a, just a double, like a diff and diff, a normal diff and diff. So it should be interpreted more as suggestive, but I do look at it precisely of what you were saying, because there are implications in terms of the, the incentives to accumulate human capital and go to school in my model as well. But that didn't make it into the published version of the paper. It's in the appendix um, because, because it's a lot more of a suggestive. It's a suggestive exercise because it's a different diff. I'm not following the same cohorts. I'm following kind of age groups, seeing if, you know, there's a change in the incentives to these subsequent subsequent groups of uh, of kids of staying in school or not. So it's it's in the appendix and I referenced a little bit in the main text, but it didn't make it again because it's more of a suggestive evidence rather than uh, rather than uh, main evidence. My third question uh, with respect to this type of strategy is in terms of how to interpret the comparison between women of different cohorts in a setting in which the variation of education is exogenous. So we have been mentioning throughout uh, that uh, we focus, you know, in the, in the type of regressions that we have been discussing 
on women who are between 15 and 20. Uh, therefore, they can still accumulate, you know, uh, some type of uh, additional human capital uh, in 1910, and then they observe that the country becomes rectified or not, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you find, uh, as you said, uh, let me repeat it again here. Women who were 15 to 20 in 1910 have a higher likelihood of employment in 1920 versus 1910 in countries with compulsory education versus not, in countries with electrification versus not. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, you run uh, the same type of regression as, as separately uh, for women who are between 26 and 30 in 1910 uh, mm -hmm. and find that for that earlier cohort, there is no difference in the uh, labor force participation according to your uh, triple differences coefficient. So, and my question is, well, that is something that your model will predict, okay? So if, if we go back to your model, your model says, well, if you're already 26 uh, to 30, you are kind of too old. And by the time that everything arrives, you don't want to accumulate human capital, et cetera, et cetera. That's fine. That, that, that makes sense in the context of the model. But you are deviating, as we have been discussing, you are deviating in your regression here uh, from the model. So the, uh, you are not using the endogenously generated education, but the exogenously, that is compulsory generated education that comes from the, from the state laws. So, in your, you know, in, in, in the actual setting, in the actual variation that you use, there could be a 30-year-old who had no interest whatsoever in taking a job and no interest in education whatsoever in taking a job because upper body strength was very low, but suddenly electrification uh, arrives, correct? And yes, that person is, is kind of old, but that person may be educated in a state in which the laws are of a particular type. Why should an earlier woman in a state that has forced her to become educated, not take advantage of this education in order to join the labor force, all right? Because, because we're in this regression shutting down uh, your endogenous mechanism. We're only using the exogenously generated mechanism. Yes. Um, so there's two things why we should expect older women, even though they might be living in a state which has, you know, this compulsory education, to not have the same sort of increase in labor force participation as uh, younger women. One has to do with the type of education as we were talking about before. So, you know, if you got an education, you're a 26 to 30 year old woman, you were, you had compulsory education that was 20 years ago, that would have been a different education from the one that our young women can access, even though the number of years may be the same because the younger women's education bears into account the new opportunities opened by electrification, the secretarial school, the remote, the switchboard school, which did not exist when this older woman was getting her education. So that's one thing, it can be different. That is not part of the model because I don't have different types of education, but in the data, it will be, it will be part of it. The second thing is that there's other decisions that are affecting kind of the ability of women to take advantage of these opportunities, uh, of these labor market opportunities of electrification. So, for example, fertility, which is something that I look at, you know, in this paper, and I also have a follow up paper on, which is, you know, if electricity comes when you're very young, you haven't married, you haven't had kids, it's not only that you can get more education, although, of course, that is part of it as well. 
It is also that maybe you can, you know, choose to not get married quite as early as you would have otherwise, maybe not have kids quite as early, which means that you can stay in the labor market potentially, uh, potentially for longer. When you're an older woman, you're 26 to 30, most likely you're already married, most likely you already have kids. So it would be difficult, even if you had the education required, which again is an if, even if you had it to kind of go back and enter uh, and enter the labor force. So let me um, react to the two points that you're mentioning mm -hmm. um, in turn. So starting with the second, if I understand it well, what you're saying is, well, my model was generating uh, different petitions for different cohorts because of this uh, requirement that I was putting in the model that you can only become educated uh, if you are young. But uh, my uh, empirical counterparts are shutting down that effect, but instead I have a different type of uh, variation across cohorts, and this comes from the fact that the labor uh, force uh, attachment needs to be generated, let's say, early in age. Otherwise, women already have four kids and it becomes hard for them to, to become switchboard operators. The uh, first thing that you uh, say is, well, maybe the uh, type of education was different. And here, again, going back to the idea that you are using these uh, exogenous laws, I guess that a question that I have is, what, what do these like uh, compulsory education laws, what are they determining, right? So one possibility is that they are saying every person, every woman, but I, I presume they apply to men as well, has to be educated for at least 10 years of their life. And then the law leaves it at that, okay? Uh, another possibility, and that would be the more natural assumption nowadays, would be that the laws actually determine, broadly speaking, the curriculum that, they, that, that they, the children have to follow, right? So here, uh, at least in the UK, uh, you cannot say children have to study for 10 years. You have to say, well, they have to cover these materials and that includes a certain level of maths, a certain level of English, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, if, it, if it was a second and not the first, I don't see why the 26 year old, I mean, you, you, you refer to them as they studied uh, 20 years ago, but actually they may have studied only 10 years ago. It's not, you know, they are not that old. Huh? Uh, they may not have uh, a type of education that is so different from their younger counterparts because it is determined by the state, right? Uh, if you tell me no, it was the laws were capturing only a number without any type of like a content guidance or, or curriculum enforcement, then I guess you're correct. I think it's more, you know, I, I think it's more the, the first one, you know, think about when this was, I think that the way that this, this is data that I borrow from other people from clay at all. And they build this sort of data set on how many years were you required to stay in school. I think that, you know, kind of doing, trying to extend that to say there was a certain curriculum. I, I wouldn't be, so, so sure, so sure about that. And in particular, you know, when I also think about this kind of mandatory schooling, I also think that, you know, you're, if you're already kind of say forced because of the loss to finish high school, even if the curriculum was the same as it was 20 years ago, now you finished, you find yourself finishing high school because you had to, and you say, okay, what should I do now? 
when the world with electricity, you're a young woman, you can still do this. You may say, I'm going to go do secretarial school. Whereas the 20 years ago, you know, the one or 10 years ago, the woman may have finished with the same curriculum in high school and might that opportunity might have not existed. So it's also about the fact of, you know, if you find yourself in that juncture because of this kind of compulsory schooling, what are the further decisions that you want to make as well in terms of human capital? And what are the options for doing that if you were young when electricity comes in versus if you were old? Um, so that's that's kind of the, the point I, I, I want to make uh, there. So this is obviously like a, an economic history type of paper. Um, so it's not that I'm... Uh, I'm not asking you here for very narrow, like public policy prescriptions, but what do you think that are, you know, the lessons that we uh, can learn uh, going forward uh, in terms of how technology is going to affect um, the potential careers, you know, the attachments to the labor force of different types of groups? Yes. So this is um, a question I, I get often because it is economic history work and it's sort of not clear why do we care about this in the modern world? And usually I have two answers. I say, you know, first of all, you know, developing even even just in the context of electricity, like, of course, there's the other technologies, which we can talk about in a second. But even in the context of electricity, the developing world is not fully electrified. It isn't. So knowing how to, you know, what the effects will be potentially for women and knowing how to harness those advantages for women by having the complementary kind of investments that are needed by having schools, by having the productive sort of landscape that will take that will enable women to take advantage of those opportunities is really important to really maximize from a policy perspective the returns from these very expensive electrification investments so that's kind of one thing the second thing is that there are other technologies uh, that have this similar kind of brain versus brawn flavor that you know that are in use today like for example the internet you know that is something that that gets discussed uh this cost a lot in terms of how it differentially affects women uh, versus men or even AI tools. And something that we, you know, in terms of kind of like a policy perspective prescription for nowadays, one, one thing we think about a lot and that we worry kind of as macroeconomists is that male work hours have been declining quite significantly in the last few decades. And it could be that what is happening is that this new technology, say the internet, AI, et cetera, that favor brain versus brawn disproportionately benefit women so that there's kind of a reallocation within the household. And understanding that 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 is kind of what is going on, I think is important if we want to think about policies to potentially correct the uh, uh, what is happening with men in the labor market um, as well. Yes. Wonderful. Thank you, Daniela, for coming to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jordi. I appreciate it. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to other past or future episodes that you may enjoy, introductory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan.